uh, how that should be interpreted, among other things. And uh, I acknowledge this is a highly contested passage of Scripture. It's one of those passages where people have a particular approach and a particular interpretation of Genesis chapter 1, and we can dig down into our approach and then kind of defend it at all costs. And I think that what can happen in the course of doing that is that we miss the message of Genesis chapter 1. I don't think whether the earth, well, arguing about whether the earth is 6,000 years old or 4.5 billion years old is really what Genesis 1 is all about. It's about who God is and about our relationship with God. That is what Genesis is all about, and that's what we're going to focus on today. So when we jump into the question of how should we approach and interpret Genesis 1, there's a, there's a whole field of study. It's called hermeneutics, and hermeneutics is all about how we should interpret literature, not just biblical literature, but all literature, hermeneutics. It's, it's kind of a science, but it's also an art, and it's a, it's a very deep field, and a lot of theology actually depends on our hermeneutics. And the big hermeneutical question, well, or principle that I want to, to put forward today is this idea that when you're reading literature, any literature, you have to ask yourself the question, what did the author intend when they said what they said, wrote what they wrote? What did the author intend? Because it's what the author intended to say that is, that is key to understanding what is said. You also need to ask the second question, how would the original recipients have understood the communication? Because the original context and the setting of the communication locks in the meaning of a verse. It locks it in. Let me give you a, an example of what I'm talking about. So 50 years ago, I could have described myself as being gay. Because 50 years ago, the word gay meant carefree, cheerful, bright and showy. Okay, I'd only be gay some of the time then. So that is what gay used to mean. And so when we head off to the artscape to watch West Side Story, and Maria stands up and is much moved and sings the words, I feel pretty, oh so pretty, I feel pretty and witty and gay, Maria is not coming out of the closet. In fact, the song goes on to say that she has met a pretty guy and she pities any girl who isn't me today. Interestingly enough, the author had later wrote in life that he feels terribly embarrassed about this song, just because it's so silly, really. So, 
when you're trying to understand what Maria is saying, the hermeneutical principle applies. You have to say, well, well, when old Stephen Sondheim wrote these words, what, what did he mean when he put the words in Maria's mouth, I feel pretty and witty and gay? Because it's what the author's intention were and what those words meant at the time and what the, the early recipients, the first people on Broadway that went to see West Side Story, how did they understand I feel pretty and witty and gay. Because that is what locks in the meaning of the song. You cannot come along today in our woke era and read these words and say, oh, that's interesting. Maria was, was, was gay. Because she wasn't. I also came across this old hymn by Charles Wesley, which we don't sing much today, and for good reason. The second verse refers to the gay. You see there? There's a good old Wesleyan hymn. The gay who rest nor worship prize, Jehovah's changeless sign despise. Ironically, he's saying in the song that the gay out there, i.e. people, that are happy and a bit showy and living their lives, they're not conscious of God. And you've got to enjoy the prophetic irony here that he says that the gay are not conscious of Jehovah's changeless sign, the rainbow. <laughs> Which is what Charles Wesley is talking about in this hymn. But of course, Charles Wesley didn't have any of that in mind. Because when Charles Wesley wrote his song about the gay, he just meant people that are getting on with their lives happy, happy and not conscious of the Lord. So when you're trying to understand literature that is not written in your day, literature that comes from another era, even in 50 years, words change their meaning and things shift and the nuances of words shift. When we go to the book of Genesis, we're going back thousands of years, thousands of years. We're going back to a language that was written backwards with an alphabet we know nothing about. Well, most of us. We've got to put ourselves in the culture. We've got to immerse ourselves in the context in order to interpret the literature in the way it was intended. We can't bring some new clever meaning that we think is the right meaning and impose it on the biblical text. We need to say, well, what is the biblical text saying? When the author wrote that, when it was written to a bunch of people and they heard it for the first time, what did they think? Because it's the author's intention and the original meaning that defines what is being said. Let me give you another example. Think of two people very much in love. And they're watching the sunset. And the one says to the other, you know, right now I'm feeling butterflies in my stomach. 
being here with you tonight is a dream. I love you to the moon and back. Watching the sun go down like this makes my heart skip a beat. And we could all reflect that love is in the air. Those of you old enough to know who Neil Diamond was, <laughs> or is. When you hear lyrics and words and communication like this, you know exactly what is being said. It is perfect communication. It perfectly gets the message across. The communication achieves its purpose 100%. There can be no doubt of what is going on. Love is in the air. But if a bunch of robots came and looked at this, they would find all sorts of problems, all sorts of problems. Errors, things that are factually incorrect. Because the person's not really feeling butterflies in their stomach. They're not dreaming. They can't love you to the moon and back. The sun's not going down and your heart doesn't skip a beat. Well, to my knowledge. And there's no love in the air. So, so it is the, the kind of literature and the context and the setting that determines what the message is. Have you listened to song lyrics in our day? The most inane nonsense half the time. But who cares? It's a song. You're just listening to it for the beat and for the melody. You kind of accept that the song's like that just because, you know, it's a song. We need to familiarize ourselves with this French word genre, which means type of literature. It's a very important concept in hermeneutics, genre. What is the kind of literature that we're looking at? when we're looking at a particular place in the Bible. You know, there are many, many different genres. Just in our lifetime, a whole lot of new genres have been invented. We now have tweets, posts, memes, blogs, vlogs. I discovered a few weeks back that you even get a video meme. That was news to me. There are other kinds of literature that have been around a lot longer. Novels, newspaper articles, opinion pieces. There's scientific literature. A couple of years back, my son was involved in a car accident because a drunk driver bashed him from the back when he was parked at a robot. And the way you tell your friends what happened is very different to how you tell the insurance assessor that comes to your house to visit you what happened. In the one, when you're talking to your friends around the bri, you say, this guy smacked you. When the insurance assessor's there, you say, I was at zero velocity. 
the gradient was, you know, and so you, it's just a different way of speaking, different context, same story. It is the kind of genre and the setting that determines how we interpret the Bible. There are many, many different kinds of genres in the scriptures. There's poetry, there's, there's letters, there's reported speech, there's parables, there's narrative. It's all in there. And every form of genre has its own rules and its own methodology for interpretation. So the question before us is what kind of literature is Genesis 1 and 2? Well, all I can say is that we do need to be sensitive to the original context, to how words are being used, and sensitive to the purpose of the author. And it is my view that Genesis 1 and 2, it is a theological document. Its purpose is to teach us about God. Its purpose is to teach us about our relationship as as humanity to God. That's the purpose of Genesis chapter 1 and 2. We can't bring a modern scientific mindset and interrogate Genesis 1 and 2 from that perspective. Modern science was only invented a couple of hundred years ago. We cannot bring a foreign mindset to a genre and a piece of literature that was written in another world and in another context. If we do that, we can miss the moment. Imagine that girl, imagine she's a silly girl. And as the guy is confessing his undying love to her and saying, I have butterflies in my stomach just being here with you. Imagine if at that point she says, what do you mean you have butterflies in your stomach? You don't have butterflies in your stomach. She would ruin that lovely moment. If she was a medical student and, and he says, oh, heart's just missed a beat, and she whips out her stethoscope. You can mess up communication by approaching it, by, by, by not understanding the context, the moment, what's going on. And you can, you can ruin something by, by taking what perhaps is poetic and, and bringing some other mindset or approach to it. My purpose today is not to demonstrate why I believe the genre of Genesis chapter 1 is more poetic. Because in order for us to have a discussion about that, we would all need to have at least a master's degree in ancient biblical Hebrew. Yeah. And once we're all at that level, we're all reading Hebrew, we all read a lot of Hebrew poetry, then we can have a nice discussion together about is this poetry or is this prose. But until we're at that level, and I'm certainly not at that level, we, we can't be dogmatic about what this passage is saying. Even the New Testament contains many different genres. Some things Jesus said are not meant to be taken literally. 
There is no camel that can fit through an eye of a needle. Not even one. Whether the days in Genesis 1 are 24-hour periods or their epochs of time makes no difference to me. Because the story of Genesis is there to teach us about God and his power. Maybe the days in Genesis, it's a literary device to help us to remember the story. Just maybe. I'm not saying it is. I'm just saying it could be. And by the way, I want to have my cake and eat it. It's always nice to do that. Just because I'm saying that Genesis 1 and 2 is primarily poetic in its nature and its purpose is to teach theology, that's not to say that the statements in Genesis are not scientifically correct or accurate. I I don't want to say that. Why should I make that categorical statement? I'm just saying that's not the purpose of Genesis 1 and 2. So let's pretend we lived back then. Well, nobody lived back then, if you know what I mean. But but shortly after that, maybe seven days later, there were people, at least. We can all agree on that starting point. When people read the words, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Boom! That is a powerful theological statement. It's saying you're a created being. You you were made for a purpose. You're not just here. It also tells you that this world is not controlled by arbitrary spirits and what your ancestors are up to. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It's saying there is a God. He created us. He created the heavens and the earth. It says there are not many gods, sky gods, gods over various parts of the world. It's a commentary on it's, sorry, it's not a commentary on how God created the universe. It's a commentary on who created the universe. We go on. The earth was formless and, and void and empty. And the Holy Spirit's there. And God said, let there be light. That tells us, and it would have told the ancient people, that God is the one who can bring order into chaos. And God brings order. He brings light into darkness. These are the powerful truths of Genesis 1. This is the message above all of Genesis 1. It's defining who God is and our relationship with God. The more I learn about the universe, the more my mind blows. Sometimes it actually gets sore. Have you ever thought such complex thoughts that you feel the minds about 
about to like click over and The writer of Psalm 8, also a poet. Oh Lord, how majestic is your name. You've set your glory above the heavens. When I think of your creation, the heavens, the, the moon, the stars, I think, what is humanity that you are mindful of him? Lord, how majestic is your name in, in all the earth. In Romans, we're told the same thing, that God's invisible qualities, His eternal power are, are clearly seen in what has been made. Creation speaks of the, the glory of God. Another important thing that flows out of Genesis is that God saw all that He had made, and it was good. That New Age notion of dualism, of yin and yang, that for all eternity there's kind of good and evil in this happy dance together, is nonsense. When God created the universe, it was all good. Everything is good. Our sexuality is good. Every Everything that God created and designed is good. It's not a mixture of good and bad. It was just good. And the message of Genesis 1 is that God made everything. It's reiterated in John's version of Genesis. In the beginning, there it is again, was God. And through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing has been made that has been made. Genesis should inspire us to worship. As we begin to, to wrap up, let me say a few things about the relationship between science and faith, or science and spirituality. Some people have said they're incompatible, or, the, or they're independent. Science and, and spirituality have nothing to do with each other. Others have said, no, they're complementary. That science will help you with your theology, and theology will help you with your science. And it was because of good Christian theology that science was birthed. And most of the early scientists and those that invented the scientific method were Christians. And they did science because they believed the world was ordered and structured and you could discover why things were happening because of the fixed laws of nature. It was the, the Judeo-Christian worldview that gave birth to science. Science was not born in a in an environment where people thought the world was this random crazy thing with spirits and ancestors doing stuff, and that's why things were happening. Science and faith are two different things, but God created them both. And truth is, is truth, and if it's a scientific truth and a theological truth, they will both be true. Poor science and poor spirituality will contradict each other, but good science and good theology will not. Good science in no way rules out the existence of God. 
And in many ways, the existence of God will, will lead to good science. Let me tell you about a time when science and the church did clash a little bit. It's when a guy called Galileo decided that actually the earth does travel around the sun. And when he shared that news publicly, the church didn't take too, too well to it. And it took the Catholic Church 350 years to say they were wrong. I'll just throw in this little side comment that if you think, think things go slowly in our church, it, it's worse, can be worse in other, other churches. So after 350 years, the Roman Catholic Church did a 13-year investigation. Sounds a little bit like the NPA. 13-year investigation. And they concluded that Galileo was wrong. And so they went out and arrested him. And they threatened him with torture. And this poor, poor man, Galileo, this wonderful intelligent scientist, was made to go down on his knees at the threat of being burnt at the stake. And to say that his own discovery that the earth went around the sun was, I don't even know what this means, abjured, it can only mean something, I mean, there's a lawyer here who probably knows, cursed and detested. And then as he got off, off his knee after saying that, he muttered under his breath for maybe just a few people close by to hear, but it does move. And later he would write to his friend Kepler. Oh, because of his advanced years, how kind, he was 77, they, they decided just to put him under house arrest. Here he is writing to Kepler, another great scientist, and he says, I wish that we might laugh at the remarkable stupidity of the common herd. What do you have to say about the principal philosophers of this academy who are filled with the stubbornness of an ass and do not want to look at either the planets, the moon, or the telescope, through the telescope, even though I have freely and deliberately offered them the opportunity a thousand times? As you can see, the church has not always coped well with scientific discoveries. <laughs> and poor old Galileo is tearing his hair out because he can't even get the esteemed ecclesiastical leaders of his day to look through the telescope and to see for themselves that the earth does go around the sun. But Good theology will never clash with good science because God is the author of both. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. 
The earth was formless and void, but he brought order. He said, let there be light. And it was good. I'm going to show you a video now. I'm sure many of you have seen it before, but it's a beautiful video. It's been watched millions of times. And it just shows us how great God's creation is, both in terms of big and small. Take a look at this. (laughs) 